All right, hello and welcome to Realcom's second webinar in the series titled Workplace Evolution Trends and Immersive Experiences. I'm Chuck Nicewonger, your Realcom host for today's webinar, Workplace Models and Case Studies. If you tuned into last week's webinar, you heard what employers thought about the workplace, hybrid work, return to office, tenant applications, and more just two or three years ago that has significantly changed to today. In this webinar, we'll explore how companies are adjusting to the latest demands. But before we get started, let me go over a few housekeeping items to help you have a great webinar experience. Thank you to our live attendees. We do encourage you to use the Q&A box in the bottom left of your screen to submit questions or comments. We always like it when you participate and we'll try to deal with any questions or issues that you'd like to raise for our panel today right away as quickly as we can. In the handout section, you'll find more detailed bios of our panelists, today's slide presentation, and the one from the previous webinar last week. For the best webinar experience, we do recommend closing out other internet applications, especially streaming videos. You may be watching this remotely from home in a reserved office, in your private office maybe, or even in a specially designed office neighborhood. Either way, our panel will explore how we got here, what companies are doing, and where we're going. If you are experiencing any technical issues with connectivity, sound, video quality, audio, any of that, the best thing to do is disconnect and reconnect to the webinar again, or you can email in at ithompson, that's I-T-H-O-M-P-S-O-N, at realcom.com for help during the event. But don't worry, you won't miss anything because this is being recorded and you'll get a link later today to the full recording. I've included my email on this slide in case you think of this, uh, think of questions or you have issues or concerns that you would have asked the panel had you been live, but just send them to me. I'll forward them on to our panel and we'll get you, uh, you'll get you an answer. This educational webinar is supported by our outstanding sponsors. Carrier Abound is a suite of connected solutions and a cloud-based digital platform that enables real-time, intelligent, outcome-based results that make buildings more efficient while providing occupants with confidence in the health and safety of their indoor environments. Reaply puts reuse on the table for every business. By combining digital marketplaces and inventory management with sustainability options, your organization can keep valuable products and materials in use, reduce costs and landfill waste, and help you reach your ESG goals. We are grateful for the contributions by these technology partners to our industry, to Realcom, and to helping us educate viewers in sessions just like these. If you've tuned in to learn more about the latest in workplace, where we're going, what's happening, what's been challenged, you've come to the right place, and you'll certainly wanna keep these vendors in your vendor evaluation process and consideration. Our moderator for today's webinar is Michelle Osborne. She's Principal and Senior Director and U.S. Workplace Consulting Lead at Avison Young. Welcome, Michelle. Thank you so much for having me. As Chuck said, my name is Michelle Osborne. I'm with Avison Young. And we are a real estate firm where we understand that our job is really isn't just about the buildings, but it's about the spaces and the places that are really helping, oops, there we go, one more, that are uh, 
they're really helping to impact the lives of employees uh, and also helping businesses thrive. Uh, as you can see on this map, we're a global firm uh, with brokerage services that are deeply integrated with our other professional services, including valuations, uh, location incentives, project management, design build construction, and workplace and change management consulting. And workplace and change management consulting is the area that I lead for the US for Avis and Young. The job has certainly evolved from this tiny green slice that you see on the wheel here uh, that, that talks about how much space and how many seats to really looking at how workplace uh, helps to meet strategic business uh, objectives, how it really appeals to the hearts and minds of the talent in your organization, and how it really more than integrates, but in fact lives side by side with your digital workplace. Uh, like many on this panel, I was deeply immersed in workplace uh, long before 2020. And like you, I am really excited to talk with each of them today about what's working and not working and what we can learn. I want to set the stage today um, with a couple of examples from our own consulting practice at Avis and Young uh, that demonstrates maybe from a real estate perspective, what is so challenging about the decisions that are in front of our clients and customers today. Um, and what you can see in this, whoops, there we go. Sorry, just moving back here. Um, Two examples here um, that I wanted to go through. A question that we get asked a lot is about who is contracting, who is expanding? Is it happening in just the suburbs? Is it happening just in the central business districts? Is it certain types of industries? And I think the theme that we're seeing now is really um, around what stage a company is in and that really driving their real estate solutions. So companies that are in a high growth stage are still adding more space. Um, and we have an example here of an auction service um, in New York City that was adding to their footprint. They were consolidating a lot of businesses in different areas, expanding and growing and really increasing their square feet in order to meet that need. Um, some of the same things exist for companies that have higher in-office attendance, and depending on the industry, sometimes uh, there is a higher uh, attendance in the office and they still need to keep the same amount of real estate that they have today. And then, of course, lots of stories out there around companies that are now leveraging hybrid work, uh, creating density and creating vibrancy in their office, offices by right-sizing their footprint. And so we have an example of that. Uh, a company that was uh, reducing their square foot uh, really to adjust to new ways of working, which is a lot of what we're going to talk about today. Um, another example that I wanted to bring up is a question that comes up often uh, as we're talking with clients about new work models. Uh, get this question probably once a week. What should be our seat ratio um, if we're working more hybrid and if we are coming into the office at different times. And I think 
the example that I'm showing here, these three charts are really showing three clients who are all taking a very different approach uh, to their seat ratio. The first company, a construction company that is in the office a lot. They are still building one seat to every person. Those are the green bars. They're assigning them fully. And the growth trajectory is the line that you can see moving across the eight years. Another company uh, that is embracing more seat sharing, you can see they have more orange hoteling seats and they're not quite building one seat to every person, more like uh, two people to every seat in their office. A third example on the far uh, right-hand side of your screen uh, is a company, a healthcare company headquarters that's really embracing flexible work and is building one seat for every five people in their organization and not coming into the office as much. What is interesting about all three of these case studies is that they are the same size organization. They are all located in suburban um, uh, parks outside of major metropolitan areas. Uh, two of them are even in the same industry. Uh, so while they are alike in many ways, they are taking different approaches. And I think that's what we're going to hear a little more about today is really what are some of those drivers that are uh, moving people towards one model or another and what are some of the different ways that clients are, are looking at the future of work and the future of work in their organization. So again, I am really happy to be your moderator today, and we are looking forward to each of these discussions. Um, we are going to start off um, with a discussion with Dejana uh, Chappelle. She is with uh, Ernst & Young with EY, and she serves as the Workplace Strategy Solution Leader for EY, advising a team of specialists uh, who help to deliver these integrated solutions to clients, helping to close the gap between uh, uh, real estate performance, user experience, and future business enablement. She is a principal in the corporate real estate practice within EY's strategy and transaction organization. Uh, Dejana, welcome and uh, thank you so much in advance for your time today. Thank you. We, we are going to have a discussion and we are, uh, and please use the chat if you have additional questions for Dejana specifically. We may get to them during this conversation or we may get to them in the panel discussion at the end. So please, please go ahead and put your questions in. Uh, I want to start by talking about the fourth installment of the Work Reimagined Survey. Um, the survey uh, that uh, EY has been doing, again, for four years, really focused on new ways of working um, around flexibility, around talent retention, turnover, and one of our favorite topics, the balance of power between employees and employers. Uh, 17,000 respondents uh, from employees, it covers 1,500 different employers across 25 sectors and 20 geographies, uh, so needless to say, a comprehensive uh, survey. And while 
there's a lot of information here. Dejana, do you want to start by maybe just giving us some of the major themes or outcomes uh, from this survey, from this fourth installment? Yeah. Uh, thank you, Michelle, and happy to be here. So the, the one thing about this survey we get so excited about is the last four years, as we all have experienced, has changed and evolved so much. And we started this survey in 2020. And so we've been able to really pull together really interesting insights, especially as we compare the first installment to the second, to the third, and to the fourth, and how employees and employers are responding to a lot of the same questions. And so um, there were seven major themes coming out of the survey this, this installment. So I'll go through each seven. Um, so the first one is, and you know, we're all experiencing some economic slowdown, right? And um, and there's financial labor market pressures all sort of taking place. And but even with that, employees still hold the balance of power. So, you know, two years ago, 18 months ago, a lot of talk about the Great Recession and the Great Resignation, excuse me, and. A lot of that has maybe disappeared as on a, at the forefront of employer conversations, but employees still hold uh, true to the balance of power. So even in a slowdown in economic environment, employees still hold the cards. So that's sort of the first major theme or outcome. Um, number two is even with this economic slowdown, um, it's not as, as aggressively as we thought would be reducing the likelihood to quit. So I think employers are sort of overestimating this truth, um, whereas employees know that absolutely, um, if certain elements and factors aren't available to me as an employee, I'm still very likely to quit. So I think that's one uh, big aha that we found in this survey. Um, number three is pay remains the number one factor for employees deciding where to work, how long to stay, um, whereas talent attraction, as we can understand, is the number one factor for employers. So given this tight labor market we're experiencing, employers are still really doubling down and focused on talent attraction, and employees themselves are saying, pay is absolutely the number one factor for me, um, not benefits, not some of the other things we might have seen pre-pandemic or even pre-sort of great resignation. Um, number four is there's, and you touched on this, Michelle, a little bit, is there's still this tension with hybrid work and fully remote um, between employers and employees. Um, so the demand from employees, and I'll touch on this maybe a little bit later, but the demand is actually increasing for fully remote work. So five days a week out of the office, whereas we're seeing employers still wanting hybrid to some degree. Um, so we saw a pretty big increase of 31% of people responding to the survey in 2022 wanting fully remote work to 41 so a 10 percent increase in demand and interest in fully remote work five days a week away from the office which i think was surprising for a lot of us especially given a lot of the the current trends and what we're seeing in the news about rto mandates um there's still a huge demand for fully remote work um number five and then two or three more to go number five is that um, the best spaces and amenities, while they are absolutely important, and I'm sure everyone on this on this call agrees that with that, but it does not solely drive attendance. It does not solely drive engagement, nor does it solely in, in, in sort of drive um, RTO uh, outcomes. And so what the survey found is that in addition to amenities, they're really more about enabling some of the, the elements that we're looking for. So the number one element that employees said in the survey that they're would drive them to the office is the ability to be socially connected. Number two is the ability to collaborate with colleagues. And then number three is the ability to build and maintain relationships. So that's one, two, and three reasons for why someone would want to go into the office. Um, 
amenities and design sort of fell towards the end of that survey. But again, it's not to say that they aren't important, but when the question was asked about what will drive you to the office, absolutely connection, collaboration. But I think we all know on this call that in terms of enabling those things, if you're going back to an element of space that you can't see one another, um, it's dark, you know, there's some, something, some elements that just don't help to foster collaboration, even though that's what you're looking for, you're not going to get it. Right, so that's what those are some of the interesting um, outcomes. Number six is that when it comes to generative AI, there's a huge demand um, and interest and in, in overall positivity and optimism around it. Um, and there's a lot of optimism around what it might do for productivity as well as flexible working. So going back to sort of the, the days looking, employees are looking to be remote, right? They think that gen AI might have a potentially positive effect on the ability to work flexibly. So in really interesting um, outcome there. Number seven, and lastly, is that leadership, trust, and empathy, it continues to drive better culture outcomes. And you know, coming out of the pandemic, a lot of employers really are more focused on culture in a good way. But ultimately, the, the interest of employees is that leaders have trust in them and empathy um, more than anything else. So those are the top seven outcomes, Michelle. And again, some of these were big ahas and some changes from last year's installment. So really interesting um, elements there. Yeah, I mean, those are those are really great insights. And, and again, these are topics that are at the forefront of the conversation when it comes to workplace right now. So it's nice to have uh, some data to back that up and start to look at uh, what are the facts uh, maybe over the headlines uh, even that, that we often see. Uh, but certainly going back to one of the headlines, which is around uh, maybe the gap between employers and employees. Um, I wonder if as you look at that topic, you know, one, you were looking at what drives folks into the office and maybe some misconceptions around that. Are there some other gaps uh, that you noticed through this survey between employee responses and employer responses? Yeah, so going back to sort of that tension, there's tension on productivity and productivity is one of those conversations that it's really difficult. I always sort of pressed when I work with clients, I always sort of challenge to say, well, how are you measuring productivity before the pandemic? And a lot of times, it was just butts in seats. I see that I see that person physically in the seat. They must be productive. And I think now, in a good way, we're starting to see productivity as a more robust element. But really trying to define it is is key. Um, but on productivity, there's this tension between employees thinking that, hey, I can be productive regardless of where I work, right? Um, but employers are still really saying, um, we really want to see you. They're less optimistic about the productivity enhancements over the last three, four years. So that's probably one area where we're seeing still some tension and, and some gaps. Um, I'd also add on culture, there's the employee perception um, that uh, culture is not getting better. Um, Whereas I'd say 2021, 2022, and the results of the survey showed, hey, actually employees are seeing employers invest more in culture, but they're starting to see that die down a little bit and decline. So whereas employers themselves are optimistic, they feel, hey, our culture is great. Um, so there's that disconnect there. And then the last thing I say is the good news is that both employers and employees in the survey both had agreement on that learning and skills um, are the number one priority. So sort of building skills for Gen AI, um, building skills for sort of learning and talent and sort of attraction, all of those things are really, really key and number one factors for both. So 
that's the good news. There's some agreement. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And I, you know, I think you you touched on a lot about some of the even the definitions that we're all working under in terms of well, what is productivity and how do we measure it? And the same with culture, you know, what did, that word gets thrown around a lot. And I, I think this, it, you know, it is helpful to see some clarifying information on um, on how employees and employers view culture and what it even means to them. So uh, I think that's that's super helpful and uh, and insightful for anyone who wants to read more into that. Um, when you you mentioned some of the top factors um, around workplace, um, maybe could we dive in a little bit more about what are some of the factors that are impacting what is happening with the workplace, uh, specifically more in the corporate real estate world and in the knowledge worker um, world? We know there's there's lots of other kinds of workplaces out there, but but anything specifically you're seeing that is that is impacting what's happening inside the corporate office walls? Yeah, so um, so knowledge workers, most of them work in a corporate office environment, right? And so agree that let's sort of focus it on that on that for now. Um, so knowledge workers, I'd say a third of them in the survey said that they would like to work fully remote. And then 50% say that they'd like to work no more than one day in the office per week. And so a lot of implications for our clients and for organizations that are really trying to grapple with that, with how much space do you need. Um, employers really want two to three days. Employees want maximum of one day. So there's that tension, right? Um, when it comes to class A space, there's also some interesting um, uh, outcomes to say that class A or asset class for your space doesn't necessarily um, drive attendance, nor does it drive engagement or culture. So, but it is intuitive that uh, employers that are willing to invest in class A space are also doing a lot of other things. And so the quick three things that we're seeing positive movement is around culture, um, is around connectivity and inspiration for work. And then lastly, I'd say just around successful operationalization of flexible work. So a lot of great insights there. Yeah, no, that's that's really insightful. Um, and I think, you know, again, making some of the correlations between where employers are investing and what that says to employees, I think is, uh, yeah, an important point to continue to keep in mind um, and really looking at this data and what, uh, uh, what we can learn about where to invest going forward. So I think this is really helpful. Uh, Dejana, we're going to bring you back during the panel discussion. Uh, so again, for the audience, if you have questions uh, for Dejana, we'll have some more questions for you during that. Uh, but we really appreciate your time and thanks for your insights and for summarizing uh, this report. Again, this is the Work Reimagined Survey uh, by EY, fourth edition um, out now. Uh, so thank you so much and we'll see you again at the uh, panel discussion. All right, we're gonna move on to our next discussion here with Pam Westwater of Quadril. Uh, Quadril is a property uh, group, a global real estate company, uh, and Pam leads a team uh, in the development and the execution of best-in-class digital customer products and engagement strategies for tenants, uh, creating platforms um, in the domestic uh, real estate, commercial, industrial, residential, retail, what area don't you cover, Pam? Uh, <laughs> uh, with years of marketing uh, 
background um, and tech branding experience, uh, Pam is really helping to find new ways that organizations can adapt to this changing environment with a lot of digital tools. So we're excited to jump into uh, some of these digital tools and platforms that you're seeing uh, pick up in this marketplace. Welcome, Pam. Thank you very much, Michelle. Happy to be here. So, so you specialize in digital products and platforms that are enhancing that tenant experience. Um, let's start again by focusing on the commercial sector first. What digital offerings um, do you find tenants really using the most, not necessarily building the most and, and putting out there in the world, but what, what is it that is, is really grabbing the attention of, of the tenant users on the digital side? Um, honestly, I think we've seen a wide array of sort of offerings that people are taking advantage of in office space. I mean, for us personally, I, I know there's a lot of other landlords out there as well that have taken advantage and launched their own tenant experience application um, that originally came out of a necessity during COVID where, you know, you were in the early, perhaps you were in the early stages of planning what that was going to look like for your tenants. And then what started as a tool initially during COVID um, kind of evolved into a tool where you were using it as people were coming back into the office. So, so sort of evolving what initially was used as like a way to connect with people virtually, whether you were hosting um, virtual events or letting people know about the changes that were happening to the building when they could come back to the space during COVID and then transitioning that to be more of a full throttle sort of digital amenity offering now. Um, we've seen in terms of take up on it, it's really transitioned from what it was as people are slowly coming back to the office and familiarizing themselves again with the buildings that they're coming into. We wanted to make sure that we were finding ways to communicate that with the tenants that are in our building. So, you know, there was a lot of brainstorms and things that were happening on what would people would be using the most on there but I think truthfully and honestly they stick with what's most tried and true which is most for the most part like being able to book amenity spaces in the building we've created an entire digital application in order to be able to do that registering for events because as people are coming back and collaborating again like Dijana said you know, we want to be able to create a space that allows them to come back together as a community. So being able to use those digital tools to invite people out to these things and, and create a community of people that are coming back into the office space, um, not just, you know, thinking about people coming back just for work and going about their day and doing the regular things. We really want to be able to emphasize what we're doing in the building to bring people together and sort of transition them back into the office most comfortably. And I think a lot of what we're seeing in terms of usage in our tenant experience application at least is we're seeing people still being interested in like entering contests for prizes and gift cards and being able to take out of take care of um, like discounts and incentives that are offered we have a partnership with ritual where you can order your food in advance so just being able to give them incentives to go and visit the retailers that are in our spaces and come into the office and take advantage of those discounts i know it seems like minimal at times because you're like well what little things can we do to kind of bring people back into the space and make them feel comfortable back in that space again but that's sort of what we're seeing as what people are taking advantage of for the most part and you know as you were going through this brainstorming process right of, of trying lots of of different things um you know did you notice some uh differences between uh what landlords 
thought tenants would really want to use and what was actually getting used? Were there were there some differences there, some things that you thought might have uptake that, that didn't? Um, definitely. I would say that, you know, the ideas that we throw in a brainstorming session as a landlord are things that you think people are going to pick up immediately. Like you, you come out with these outlandish ideas of, oh, if we, I don't know, let pets in the building and that that's going to bring people into the office or like oh, if we just stream them with content that's really going to be something that they're going to want to engage with but when we put things into use and we look at the metrics of what we're seeing and what people are really making use of it's really more so about the fundamentals and the core offerings of your building that people and your tenants are interested in um, there's so many applications that are out there generally speaking, that are serving community-based discussions and serving out content that they really don't want. They're already overwhelmed with that kind of stuff. So putting that content and trying to, honestly, the amount of work that it comes from the landlord side of just trying to figure out what kind of content people want to read about is almost doing too much when people already have so much information out there. So I think what we did was we needed to make a mind shift and really focus, scale back on the big ideas as we like to call them and really put focus back onto the basics of the building that a person is entering into every day, whether that's digitizing services, like you know having a tool to book an amenity digitally without having to do all of the paperwork and talk to go back and forth on email a million times or digitizing the visitor management experience. So when people are bringing guests into the building, they're not having to do 900 different things to get their guests into the building, having a QR code that's set up. I know that emerged a lot, you know, with things happening during COVID and we're seeing menus and things like that really take advantage of that. But using that as a visitor management tool to bring people into your spaces and eliminate sort of the 100 different steps that you would traditionally have to do for um, bringing people into your spaces. And, you know, one big ticket item that we've started to put more focus in and we've really started even piloting in our spaces is the mobile access control. It's something that's so simple. You know, you bring your card every day. Your tenants bring have to use a, an access card to get into the space. Digitizing that component and creating a mobile access control component to that is really simplifying what they're doing and how they're coming in and out of the space. It's a very simple thing, not necessarily to implement and put into your space, but it's something that we're seeing our tenants are, are very interested in. Yeah, you know, I think that, that idea of getting back to the core, getting back to the basics, uh, you know, makes a lot of sense as as it gets more complicated in our in our hybrid world and we're not in the office uh, maybe every day. So it, so it looks a little bit different. I think yeah. on the other side of this, we've talked a lot about tenant experience, um, but I understand that there's a, there's another whole platform, if you will, uh, for landlords on the digital side, uh, maybe some applications or tools that make it uh, add some cost savings uh, to their own building, which is going to be music to any landlord's ears um, right now. What are what are some of the ways that landlords are leveraging these digital apps to actually help them save money um, in the operations of their own buildings? Um, I think there's, you know, like I mentioned before, there's a lot of tools and technologies that are out there on the market that really market themselves as being like a necessity to your commercial building. Um, and I think one important thing that you're doing when you're looking at the digital tools that are available, the vetting process of looking at those tools 
is plays such an essential part in the decisions that you're making when it comes to digital products. Because there are costs that are high, a lot of times, a lot of times the solutions are based on square footage costs. So you're paying a per a, a signified amount per square footage. So as a landlord, we just have to be cognizant of what those costs versus the benefits are of those tools. Um, and then for Quadrille, for example, we've taken advantage of simplified things, whether it be digital forms, automated visitor, visitor management, sort of those tools that we put into those tenant experience. And then we've created efficiencies and simplified workflows, which in turn end up being cost savings because they're not taking up time from our staff. They're not, we're not having to do a lot of manual processes again. But we've also gone through the process of initiating a, an integrated building management platform, which allows us to have remote access and be able to control our building systems and enable us to adjust and troubleshoot issues without having on-site visits. So I think as we're transitioning more to digital platforms to be able to do some of the physical things that we would normally do in buildings, it's reducing the time and money spent on maintenance and property management. Um, and then just also bringing down the physical costs, whether it's, you know, mobile access, bringing down the physical costs of the actual items that we're using in our buildings. And um, in terms of managing space, we're also, we've put together a platform ourselves at Quadril where we have put together um, like a, a portal where you can manage your space virtually. So giving our office services teams and our tenants the ability to look at their space um, and how it's being used in terms of occupancy, how your meeting rooms are being used, being able to monitor um, environmental um, details, whether it's HVAC, whether it's temperature controls and lighting controls, and figuring out ways that we can take the data that we're getting from our spaces as a landlord and provide that back to our tenants for them to be able to monitor and better make use of their space and save money in their space as well. Yeah, and you know when a, when a landlord or maybe even a tenant is is looking at some new digital offering like this that they want to you know roll out, are there some keys to what us you know what you need to have in place if you're going to do a successful rollout of a new a new digital platform or a new digital app uh, that's being used uh, in conjunction with your space? Any anything that people when they do this this it tends to work really well. Yeah, this honestly, this is a lot of my job. Um, everything that we're looking at, as I mentioned, that vetting process is quite extensive. At time, it takes months because we want to make sure what we're putting in or what we're making use of actually does what it says it's going to do. So I think for when you're thinking about successful rollout and adoption of any new digital offering, whether it's a product, a service, whatever it is, it, it requires a lot of careful planning and execution. Um, some of the key factors that I look for when I'm looking at a digital platform are the user-centered design. So making sure that the design of the digital offering focuses on the user experience, not focusing what you as the landlord think is going to be important, but focusing more so on what you think and what you expect the users and how you their flow in using that technology is going to look like. Um, I think effective marketing and promotion of in the space is also really important. If you're not marketing what you're putting out there, no one's going to find out and be able to use it. You're going to see really low uptake numbers. You're not going to get the engagement that you're looking for with any of the digital products that you're working with. Um, I think another component of it is also change management. When you're doing and implementing a digital format for something, it's going to be a process of getting people used to it. People aren't used to just 
making a switch to something and it's just automatically going to be the process that they use going forward. So I think just preparing for whether it's organizational changes and just preparing yourself for anything that you can communicate to internal stakeholders and to your tenants in the space is going to be very important. And then just closing out that loop, get the feedback, get ongoing um, feedback from the people that are using it. Having your own opinion of how something is working and how it's working for you as the landlord is great, but getting feedback from the tenants, what they like about it. Do they think it's useful? Do they Did they download it once and then they never used it again? Like, Get the feedback from them on what they want. They're going to give you those essential pieces to know what you should be putting into your space and how you can improve the experience from their standpoint as well. Yeah. Well, uh, I, you know, that's, it's really great insight and really good, uh, you know, checklist of items to think through when you are uh, really embarking on uh, layering in new digital tools, I think, either as a tenant or as a landlord. So uh, I think that's a, a great place to stop for now. Um, and we will come back, uh, Pam, certainly have you back at the panel discussion at, at the end. Again, uh, anyone in our audience today that uh, has questions for Pam or maybe around digital tools specifically, uh, let's get those in the chat and we can cover them in the panel discussion. But thank you so much. Thanks for the insight. Yeah. Thanks for helping us understand how these tools come to life and, and what makes them successful. Really, really helpful. Um, we are going to now hear from Carrier Abound, um, and when we come back from this quick video, I will introduce our next conversation uh, with our representative from Carrier. We are delighted to have with us uh, Greg Alcorn, a Carrier Senior Vice President of Healthy Buildings. Uh, prior to assuming his current position, he held le leadership roles of, uh, of various responsibilities within Carrier's distribution uh, operations, channel management, uh, and business development, and also led Carrier's North American uh, commercial equipment business and joint venture partnership organization. Uh, I'm going to turn it over to Greg, who is going to walk us through the role that Carrier is playing in our evolving workplace, uh, particularly in the areas of comfort and sustainability and healthy buildings, uh, topics I know we're all interested in. So Greg, I'm going to turn it over to you, um, and then we'll come back for a quick chat. Terrific. Thanks, Michelle, for that nice introduction, and, and thanks, Realcom, for having me and Carrier here with this great panel uh, and audience today. So let's jump in. So at Carrier, uh, we're the world leader for healthy, safe, sustainable, and intelligent buildings, homes, and cold chain. Uh, we have over $20 billion in annual sales, uh, and now we're approaching 55,000 fantastic employees around the world. We are currently in the midst of a major portfolio transformation. We are buying a German company called Wiesmann, who is the European leader in electric heat pump technology, which we'll come back to, I'm sure, when we talk about sustainability. And we're exiting our fire and security businesses as well as part of our refrigeration business. 
when we complete this transformation in the next few months, we will be the global leader in intelligent climate and energy solutions to drive building sustainability, health, and resiliency, which is what we're here to talk about today. So I always say that a carrier, we've been in the healthy buildings business forever, but nobody ever called it healthy buildings until the last couple of years with the pandemic. And as we work to build and grow the healthy buildings movement in the US and globally, it really is a natural extension of our leadership in the green and sustainable movement over decades. We were a founding member of the US Green Building Council and the Center for Green Schools. And now green is the table stakes in most of the world for both new buildings and renovations. And this is where we need to get with healthy as well. If I gave you a glass of water that had chunks in it or was cloudy, you'd hand it back to me and say, no, thank you. But we all walk into about 99.9% .9 of the places we visit, work, go to, and frankly, live every day without knowing whether that indoor environment, that indoor air quality is sufficient and beneficial to us. We need to improve that visibility. We need to make the invisible visible. Of course, this all builds on our history and comfort pooling and founder, Dr. Carrier, invented the industry that has allowed the world and, and much of our country to live and work where it really couldn't do so uh, without air conditioning. So let's focus on you, where you all sit in commercial real estate. We've already heard from Dejana and Pam, and I think it was very insightful and really leads into this discussion. We know that your new normal is uncertain. Between demand fluctuations, the future of work, Dejana talked about, well, we'll talk about the power shift to tenants. Dejana talked about the power shift from um, employers to employees. If you go upstream from that in the real estate world, you're talking about a power shift from owners and operators to tenants, and then in terms of tenants to employees. So it really is a power shift and fluctuation you know, throughout the value chain. There's a flight to quality. There's a demand for flexible spaces. Um, what the future of work is is a very big open question, and the survey that Jenna talked about informs a lot of it, but we know it's going to be Clearly, there's a lot of volatility, whether it's interest rates, whether it's geopolitics. You need to do risk mitigation. Cost of capital is up. Investment. You know is is constrained and those investments need to be chosen very careful for not only return on that investment or but for different ways to create that return on investment you know the difference between investing in the physical plant versus investing directly in employees versus digital solutions there's a big competition for capital and you need to do what is best going to serve your long-term goals of comp you know, being competitive uh and high, having those higher lease rates and lower vacancy rates then, of course, regulatory pressure, whether it's ESG, electrification, decarbonization, we'll talk more about that. Government incentives, penalties, regulations are driving decisions, and those are only going to get you know, more pressure going forward. And so it's a very uncertain and tough environment for commercial real estate. And we know that there are certain things that are going to be non-negotiables, one of which is sustainability. It's clearly a core and a key priority. Uh, it's the center of the bullseye now, and it's only going to be a bigger focus going forward. But sustainability is not monolithic. It's not just energy efficiency anymore. Okay, We're talking about decarbonization and electrification. Again, some of that is government regulation. A lot of that has incentives around it, but it all comes back to competition in the real estate market. Resiliency with climate change. We've had multiple webinars and communications with our customers around resiliency. With climate change, change comes not only the requirement to improve your indoor environment, but it's to deal with the outdoor environment more and more, whether that's heat, whether that's wildfires, whether that's weather events, to make sure that when the outdoor air isn't great, 
you can still make the indoor air very healthy. Obviously, energy efficiency is a big deal. 40% of the energy in the world is, is used by buildings, and our products use up 40% of that, so we are a key player. And of course, many in the audience here and your customers have ESG commitments that are very important to them, and they've got to report and you've got to report out on not just complying, but how do you differentiate yourself from your competitors by what you're doing in ESG? So let's talk about healthy buildings and indoor air quality. At Carrier, we've supported extensive research uh, with Harvard University and the TH Chan School of Public Health. We've defined the foundations of healthy buildings, and as you might imagine, we address a lot of them, like ventilation, indoor air quality, thermal health, humidity, et cetera. But some of the most impactful findings of this research were well beyond COVID avoidance and immediate health impacts. The positive impacts and benefits of healthy buildings get to things like cognitive function, productivity, performance, and long-term both individual and societal health effects. It's really about going from defense to offense. It's not just getting people back. It's making our buildings work better for everyone who uses them. We spend 90% of our lives indoors. And the bottom line is that all buildings of whatever flavor are an essential and very underutilized public health asset. And we have to make sure that indoors is a healthy place to be. And along with sustainability, you know, healthy buildings really do deliver differentiation and value to all the stakeholders in the value chain and all constituents within those pieces. So in terms of higher asset valuations for owners and higher employee value and productivity for tenants and employers, and then for those individual occupants, obviously lower disease transmission, but also better cognitive function and emotional health and well-being. So doing the right thing from a health perspective really is doing a good thing for your business and for the business of your customer. So we see sustainable and healthy outcomes converging. It's, it's happening in real time. We're seeing demand both push and pull. So as government uh, actions, whether, whether regulations or incentives that I talked about, or whether it's the end users to the, to the point um, that Pam made and, and John made around employees uh, saying, you know, what would make them come back or not. Uh, so push and pull, and by the way, not just employees, but if you're, if you're a company that has visitors or diners or, or travelers, those pull demands of, I want to see how healthy my building is, uh, make a big difference in the competitiveness of, of that business. So, so ultimately, when we talk about outcomes, uh, it really gets down to differentiate versus just saying, come back. It's defense to offense and ultimately creating more valuable and competitive assets in wherever you sit in the business. And then finally, just, uh, whoops. Uh, you know, there was talk, uh, Pam talked about digital platforms. And of course we have our abound platform that you saw the video. And uh, that is a way to make the invisible visible, whether it's around healthy outcomes, whether it's around sustainability, whether it's around asset performance. And I look forward to talking more about that. So I'll hand it back to Michelle. Thank you so much, Greg. And we we have questions. We have more questions. Uh, we're going to cover in the panel discussion with you. But we thank you so much for sort of laying out the story of uh, of healthy buildings and why it's important and why it really is integral to this new workplace um, that we have. So we will come back to you in the panel discussion uh, with a few more questions around that area. Thanks so much. Uh, thank you. Next, we are excited to have with us uh, Nizar Hassan. 
from Reapley. And uh, before we get into that discussion, uh, we're gonna have a quick video here about Reapley and about what they do. Businesses have been thinking a little bit more about like, how do I make a dispersed, decentralized business centralized? How can I connect my employees to things that are in another employee's home or another employee's satellite office? So all of those have created kind of a storm for businesses to really be thinking about how do I operationalize this thing called circularity or circular economy? And we think we have some really great answers. You need technology and reuse to actually connect people who have stuff with people who need it within the same organization or who need it in the community. So we build at a high level, we build technology to help organizations with reuse. But what does that feel like? It feels like your employees going to a platform of the stuff you already own before they go buy something new outside your organization. Or an employee recognizes that there's something that they have in their possession that they no longer need, they can make that available to everyone in your organization through our platform. And it really helps reduce procurement spend on the one end, but also waste creation and carbon emission on the other end. Great intro video, and uh, we are excited to have with us again, uh, Nazar Hassan, who is VP of Operations for Reapley. Uh, Reapley has taken on quite the mission of creating both the community and the technology uh, to ensure that every workplace resource, and yes, we're looking at you, Aaron Chair, uh, finds its next use. Uh, Nazar has a background in sales, uh, career coaching, and education, and those are great skills to have uh, when you are really tackling uh, operations for a growing company that is opening up the circular economy, which he is going to talk about a little bit more here. So I'm going to turn it over to Nazar, and then we'll come back and have a quick chat um, after you've walked us through a little bit more about Reapley and how it works. Awesome. Thank you so much, Michelle. I uh, appreciate your time. Thank you all for having me here today. My name is Nazar, as Michelle mentioned. Uh, I'm part of the operations team at Replay. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you all for, for uh, giving us the, the time to run through a few points about Replay. Um, this topic is one that is very near and dear to our hearts, the one about uh, hybrid and, and remote work and, and changing the way we work. Um, uh, when we as a company and, and, and team members at Reapley think of remote work and the trends that, that we're going in, one of the first questions that we ask ourselves is, uh, are these trends going to create a waste problem? And the reason that we, that we uh, ask this question and we think about this often is because what we uh, deal with is FF&E. So that's furniture, fixtures, and equipment. To better illustrate, if you were to take a building, turn it upside down and shake it, it's essentially everything that comes out of it is, is FF&E. And so what we've noticed uh, while we you know, think about furniture all the time, what we've noticed is that there's a, there is a reduced demand for large office spaces, uh, you, you know, similar to what Dejana was, was mentioning with some of the stats uh, from, from her report. And as a product of that, there's widespread decommissions across uh, um, many uh, uh, organizations and, and businesses. And what this means now is that there's all the all the space, whether it's buildings or um, or floors, with a ton of stuff, a ton of furniture that needs somewhere to go. And oftentimes, where it goes is the landfill. And you're seeing the last stat there is that 80% of furniture in the U.S. actually does end up in landfill. And on top of that, nearly 20% of this uh, office space that I was mentioning earlier across the U.S. is actually sitting empty. And so it's very clear that there is a need. 
and it's it's very clear that it's it can easily be damaging to the environment if most of it is going to the landfill. So what we do is work with clients who come to us and say, hey, what we'd like to do is make sure that uh, we uh, find a way to to save some money to to track our assets, but also be good to the environment and ensure that we're minimizing our environmental footprint. And so an example of uh, one of those clients that um, uh, that we've worked with, I'll share in this case study here, uh, it's a large technology company based out of California, about 20,000 employees in 33 global offices. And they came to us with some of these challenges that are highlighted in the boxes uh, that you're seeing there on the slide. So first they said, hey, we have a campus, so uh, it's, it's one or two buildings uh, that has surplus furniture. And we essentially would like to figure out a way for everybody else to start reusing it across this campus. And, but unfortunately, there's no easy way for us, for us to track it or manage it uh, at all. And on top of that, we can't really hire anybody to take care of this problem or help us figure it out because we're undergoing budget cuts. So whatever solution that we bring on uh, needs to be uh, an efficient one, one that saves us money and also allows us to manage our uh, new, furniture, new furniture spend as that was some of the, the budget cuts. And what's really, really important is that in order for us to be able to do this effectively, let's integrate that into the way that we work on a daily basis. And then we said, no problem, that sounds great. And then uh, to, to sort of add to that, to complement that with, that with the last challenge, it's, hey, we'd also like to report back um, to, to our uh, executives on uh, the sustainability metrics on, on how, how much we've avoided uh, you know, waste from, from going to landfill, how much uh, estimated embodied carbon that we've, uh, we've avoided um, uh, in, in addition to the financial reporting. And so uh, we've worked with them over a six month period and in that in that process, and we continue to work with them, but in that uh, that small case study that we're highlighting here, we were able to uh, digitize about $4 million of assets on the marketplace. And that equates to about uh, 5,000 items um, uh, that, of course, are of different values and about 244,000 pounds uh, of weight that was identified on the platform. So the team members started to log into the platform. They started to use it. Of course, we spent some time with them, training them and making sure that it was clear on how the platform was supposed to be used across uh, which teams and departments. And they, there was about 243 items that were transacted during that time period, which resulted what you're seeing there uh, in the heading, $273,000 of, um, uh, of savings that was generated because of this furniture reuse. That equates to about 15,000 pounds of weight that was diverted. And for those of you that like to equate size to large animals in the wild, uh, 15,000 pounds is about three adult rhinos. So it's it's no joke, that's, that's a ton of assets that were diverted uh, from landfill. Uh, but my, my favorite part in all this, I mean, I, I love everything that I'm, that I'm mentioning to you all here, but my favorite part uh, is the time saving. So we went from about 16 weeks uh, or the client went from about 16 weeks of, of um, uh, needed in order for them to procure new furniture, or let's say bring in a new uh, table or a new uh, chair into the office to just two to three days uh, because now they're using uh, a surplus. So what they did is they asked all their, their team members to start referencing Reaply before they went to the procurement team to ask for a budget or to, to order um, uh, new furniture. So this habitual forming process is, is really critical in, in creating circularity uh, amongst organizations. What we're hoping to do is continue to work with them uh, uh, and, and generate this ROI and maintain the spend avoidance uh, within their within their campus. So we estimate that if they were to use about 30 to 50% of, of the furniture 
uh, to continue to use it, they would save uh, about three to $5 million. And that's amazing. And, and that's really just scratching the surface. Our goal is to work with them. I mentioned that they have uh, 33 global offices. Our goal is to work with them amongst uh, uh, their entire team and all their offices that they can share and communicate amongst each other. That really truly is, is the best way for us to draft circularity to ensure that there's this constant sharing and circulating of assets and communicating around what's there so that we can ensure that uh, the, the circularity program or the use, reuse program that was implemented is very, very effective. So um, uh, it's, uh, you know, creating a reuse program, it may sound uh, very difficult, but what we found, we can simplify it by focusing on uh, three pillars in order to do this effectively. So how do we implement effective reuse programs inside our organizations? So the, the first is to make sure that we're managing workplace resources effectively. What does that mean? So how are we tracking these assets? Where are we uh, documenting them? Where are we making sure that there is a single source of truth for our, for our um, uh, employees to reference when they're looking for, for information about, uh, about these assets? So, so they may be looking for dimensions or manufacturers, or uh, they may be looking for the condition, uh, but they also mostly just want to know, do we have this thing so that I can take it and use it for myself instead of going to my procurement team and asking for something new. Once we've figured out that, that source of truth and figured out where something is being documented, we need to find a way to share or communicate these resources amongst the team members so that there's, there's constant flow of conversation. So I need to be able to, to make an offer or, may, or request something or have a discussion about when it, when it can be delivered. And so I've seen this done in um, you know, more old school ways through listservs or email blasts. But the, the more automated that we can make this process, the more and or the more real time it could be done, the more likely someone's going to use it because it's it's happening very, very quickly. And lastly, of course, is, is, is measuring the success. So if you're looking to implement a program, you want to know, is this a successful program? So any type of reporting that you can gather around waste diversion or around uh, cost savings or, um, uh, you know, that can help uh, the data that can go back to your procurement team to help them make smarter uh, purchasing decisions all uh, really contributes to uh, an effective reuse program. And I'll just uh, end by saying that our goal by helping businesses implement these reuse programs is to create uh, circularity for every business. And that's uh, very much uh, Reapley's uh, vision in ensuring that this the circularity loop um, is, is continuously flowing between all, this, all the significant players and partners in that process. And some of them are highlighted there on the slide that you're seeing. But for example, a manufacturer should always be able to speak to um, all the, the participants in the, in the circularity process. And uh, the reuser should be able to speak to the receiver and the receiver should be able to go back to the manufacturer to give them data on how they can improve their um, the reuse or their manufacturing process. So, uh, so you know, that, that's our hope. And uh, I can't stress enough how important this is. We only have one planet and, and we have to take care of it before it's too late. And so um, uh, we hope that, you know, more businesses look to uh, implement reuse programs like this. Thanks so much for your time. Back to you, Michelle. <laughs> Thank you so much, Nassar. Uh, yeah, really seems like, uh, you know, the uh, we are in the perfect storm of needing reuse, um, and really staying focused on the environment and, as you said, the, the one planet that we do have. Um, and so it really, really does seem like a, a, a great fit for the time that we are in right now uh, and a gap. Um, I think most of us in real estate understand 
that um, there is there is not a large number of players that are, are even addressing this area, um, and certainly addressing it with the technology and the transparency that uh, that you are. So we really appreciate this. I suspect there are going to be quite a few questions in the panel discussion, uh, which we're going to move to now um, with everyone, and we'll have some more questions for you, Nassar, uh, during that process. Uh, I want to remind the audience again uh, that if you have questions, please go ahead and submit those, and we're going to get to as many of them as we can. Um, as we are getting these questions in, I am going to start by uh, by really taking us through uh, a few additional questions that we had for our guests here, and I am going to start uh, back with you, uh, Dejana, uh, wanted to talk about, uh, in addition to the report and the survey that just came out, you also recently uh, contributed to a report uh, from with uh, Cornet Global on the future of workplace, and the article addresses trends in real estate um, and how we're continuing to adjust to fit to the need of hybrid workers, and just wanted to to ask you about some of the takeaways from that Cornet um, article that you worked on uh, with them about those trends. What are yeah. some of the major takeaways? Yeah, happy to share a few. Um, a lot of the themes just from this conversation are um, very much in tandem with yeah, the report. Um, one is that defining future workplace strategies in the post-pandemic world is just an evolution. It is not a one-size-fits-all solution. It's also not a one-and-done event, right? You do one transformation and that's it. Um, it is an iterative process. It takes leadership alignment and it's ongoing. Um, so that was one big sort of takeaway from the report. Another is just, you know, leadership mindset and alignment, as I mentioned, is paramount to success of transformation. And a lot of times the clients that I work with, the number one thing we do is just what are, how are leaders sort of coming together and collaborating and what's the collective really mission and vision for the organization, establishing that first before actually moving forward with capital improvements. Um, I'd say another one is that data remains key and a lot of discussion here around data, Pam mentioned it and others, um, is really key to driving change and really proving out the business case and helping to provide insights. But it's not um, one, it's one part of the story, right? It's not the sort of the collective story. It's, um, so understanding what data you have and really driving change and towards KPIs. Um, I think those are some of the few, I, I won't go through all of them, but um, just a few to share. So curious if there's any reaction or thoughts with that. You know, I, I think those are great points. And, you know, one of the things that you brought up is really around alignment with leadership goals and how important it is as new initiatives are coming up to, to be able to align the data uh, to the larger company goals. Um, Nazar, I'm curious, in some of the uh, case studies that you showed, there were a lot of data points that you were, and you were talking about how things are measured. Um, can you maybe speak a little bit more to how sustainability data is captured and how Reefly emphasizes that and, and what real estate teams can do and what leadership teams can do with that, with that information as they're trying to align that service with ESG goals and, and other things that may be on their plate. 
Yeah, that's awesome. So, I, I, um, I mean, reporting could be used in a lot of ways. I, I mentioned that this is data, for example, that could go back to your procurement team so that they're uh, better equipped to make smarter purchasing decisions. So there's, for example, less surplus and you're using exactly what you need versus storing something in a storage room, which takes energy, takes money, takes personnel. Uh, it, it also goes back to the data that you pull goes back to your to your board goes back to your customers so that they can feel that uh, confidence in in the brand and in the in the in the performance of, of the company as a whole. The 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 reason that we focus so much on on measuring sustainability reporting um, is because we focus on the built environment in a in a big way, and the built environment specifically contributes about forty percent. Um, uh, of of the emissions uh, of the carbon emissions that that we see on on a, on a regular basis or that are measured on a regular basis, and that's a significant amount. So if if we help folks understand um, uh, why they're they're taking care of the furniture and the fixtures and the equipment uh, is uh, is essential, or or we we do our best to make it simpler to understand, then we can have a um, a very powerful impact on reducing uh, those greenhouse emissions. And so, uh, you know, the, the, w the way to do that effectively is to just uh, start to understand, you know, what is, uh, what are the, what are the amount of assets that I have? What's an approximate market value? How much do I think uh, they're going to be used or reused uh, throughout their life cycle before they're, they're, they're disposed? Hopefully they're never disposed and continuously reused. And then that, uh, you know, that, that reporting, Will uh, will become something very powerful for, for you if you're really just looking to do something um, uh, that's uh, that's just kind of off the cuff measurement. Uh, but again, it's it's um, you know data is sort of the new the new oil, <laughs> and and it's very very important to use that data uh, to, to to the best of your abilities to educate folks around you on why uh, this is important. And ultimately, that leads to habits and, and, and habit forming, so that your team starts to realize, oh, I, you know what, I'm I'm going to use uh, Replay or any other platform or tool because that's going to help me reduce my impact and my footprint on the environment. So it's all very circular and very connected. But I think when you when you learn, it starts to change uh, how you act. Yeah, you know, I, I think that's a really important point, and I think everyone's ears perk up when they hear one data-driven, you know, solutions. Yes, we're all in for that, and make it simple. Yeah, we're in for that too. Um, you know, and make it make it more straightforward uh, because you know companies are balancing lots of different priorities here, right? And not just their ESG goals, but but occupant experience and those kind of things. And and, and I wanted to turn. Uh, maybe Greg uh, to you and ask you as you're looking across all of those um, all of those uh, priorities. Um, are there some approaches that that you've noticed with companies that that they can take to start to balance some of these priorities, like building an occupant health, uh, building resiliency, sustainability, uh, obviously the the occupant experience. Anything that you've seen there that that you think has worked is working and, and across multiple priorities? Sure. So, um, you know, the things we do at Carrier can have an effect on the immediate and also on the very long term, like far out beyond, you know, even annual or multi-year um, operating visibility. So Nazar mentioned it, uh, and I mentioned it earlier about the built, you know, build, the built environment contributes 40% or uses 40% of the energy in the world. The stuff we do is 40% of that. So we have a huge impact and we feel a huge responsibility 
to do the right things to reduce that that energy utilization and those, and that, those emissions for sustainability purposes. So start with the immediate, taking whatever a certain building or company has and operating it smarter, not doing what you don't need to do, only doing what you do need to do based on where people are or aren't, uh, based on what times of day different things happen, uh, based on getting the best information and managing that information real time to reduce energy. You think longer term, um, and, and you know, and that in turn, of course, reduces emissions. Um, longer term, think about technology. So I mentioned earlier, you know, one of the ways that you reduce emissions, even if you're still using energy, is to have cleaner energy. So if we can transition from a carbon-based economy to an electric economy and produce that uh, that electricity cleanly, um, you know, that that's why you see all these decarbonization initiatives around the world. Um, so clearly we are transitioning, you know, as part of that to provide a broad product line as companies, municipalities, states, countries everywhere uh, look to do that. Now diving down, and I'll be very fast here, but diving down to the occupant experience that you asked about. We know that the power is shifting to occupants, to employees, as everybody has talked about. And we do want to make the invisible visible, not just for the occupant experience, but also for, for the for the employers and the owners and operators of those buildings to make the smartest decisions possible for that occupant experience, whether it's around health, whether it's around uh, productivity, whether it's around wanting to be in the building versus wanting to be not in the building, uh, as well as then making the smartest cost and energy and sustainability decisions uh, for their own businesses uh, within that consideration. So it's a continuum, but we feel strongly that making more data more visible is going to make for the best decisions for everybody. Yeah, and I think you know that's certainly a trend across a lot of these topics is the is the is transparency, right? And about making everything visible and helping people to understand how they can use less by measuring and also, you know, not work on anecdotal information but really on hard data uh, that they're seeing in their spaces. So I think that's a it's a a great point and and certainly a trend across several of these these areas. Um, I want to turn quickly to Pam here. You know, when we talked earlier and we were talking about all your the digital tools and platforms were really focused on uh, sort of the commercial sector, but wanted to give some space here uh, to any unique digital products or solutions that you might be providing in say the industrial or the residential or in the retail side uh, that that folks might not know about and, and might not have thought about? Yeah, I mean, a, a lot of what we're doing in the commercial sector can be applied across the board to all of those. So, um, you know, we built out the, our original tenant experience application within the commercial sector. We then revamped that for an iterative version of what we're doing in residential. Obviously in residential, people are in those buildings every single day for multiple hours at a time, much much longer and it's a much more important experience than what you're experiencing when you're going into the office two or three or maybe once a week as, as Dijana mentioned. Um, so it's really about being able to adapt and be flexible to what the residents may be looking for because a residential experience is going to have much higher expectations from us as a landlord than an office would um, in terms of, you know, 
the application that we had to put together was a lot more extensive in terms of being able to answer questions directly with the team, being able to have open communication portal where you're not waiting till 9 a.m. the next day when the property manager is back on site, being able to communicate and say, you know, if, if something's broken in your suite, being able to adjust to that. Um, what we're also looking at in from a residential standpoint is being able to streamline basically from curb to couch, your curb to couch experience. So figuring out touch points throughout the building where you can create or simplify technology to make it easier for people to come in and out of their space, whether that's, you know, installing smart locks on the residential suites and eliminating the need or use of fobs, um, putting a smart intercom system into the lobby where all of the visitor access, whether it's a dog walker coming into your building or um, just people that you have regularly coming into the suite to deliver food or whatever that looks like, being able to automate some of those procedures and make people's life easier. I think a lot of what we look like look at in terms of tools um, for one sector, I often look at how it can be applied and just reiterated for other sectors as well across the portfolio, because I think a lot of times trying to to work with a lot of different technologies that are out there doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to make it a smarter or more useful um, use case for the people that are in that space but looking at how you can make iterations on what you currently have and what best technology is suited to make your building smart um, as, a, as a term that we often use in everything that we're doing even when you're looking at sustainability and environmental factors like putting iot sensors into your amenity spaces so that we can understand how many people are in the gym can we adjust the temperatures that are in there or the the airflow that's going through there at busy or less busy times so that we can find costs and energy savings in those so we're, we're kind of doing it as an iterative a process across the board but i think Generally speaking, you can utilize things that you've done in one and try to apply it across the board as much as you can. You know, and I, I want to pick up on on one piece that you mentioned there, which was, you know, that, of course, the residential experience is a little bit different from the office experience, but and yet we are... Uh, sort of bombarded with applications on both sides, both our personal one and our and what we're doing at, at work. Um, and Nazar, I wanted to, to ask you as, as you're thinking about the development of the experience, the digital experience of using Reaply, was that part of the process in terms of thinking about what do people know already about sharing in the in their personal, you know, circular economy in their personal lives versus how they might use it in their office space. Were there some considerations uh, around design, uh, uh, keeping that in mind? Yeah, I, I mean, the the um, the more that you can keep uh, an application that's being developed to to mimic uh, another one that has maybe a, a, a similar use case that is already familiar to the user, the greater success that you would have in your own uh, platform that you're developing. So we we've we always do our best in our in our design to make it as intuitive as as possible. We've we've been told by our customers that the platform is very very easy to use, which is which is amazing. Um, but but also I think it's it's beyond that, right? It's it's one thing to focus on the user and their experience using the platform. But when we're looking at circularity and we're looking at reducing waste across businesses and and to, to the to the scale that that we aspire to, it's about how do you make it easy for for two people to communicate and talk to each other. How do you make it easy for a team or a department to collaborate on the platform? So you you move away from focusing on the singular or the the individual, 
and you start to shift towards thinking about the collective and the team, because ultimately circularity is not going to be done by one person. It has to be a group effort and, and a team effort. And so, so the design has to incorporate what would an accounting person worry about when, when this, this laptop is moved from this person to that person? What does the procurement team worry about when this, when this uh, chair is now uh, um, uh, added to the books of uh, another, uh, another uh, department inside a faculty? And so, so we have to think about these relationships all the time and get feedback from all these different stakeholders. Um, it's, it's a little bit more interesting given the number and the different types of stakeholders that are involved with circularity. So, uh, so it's, it's always in a very iterative process. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a great that's a great way to show how it extends from the personal. I'm just trying to to figure out what I need uh, to what do we need collectively uh, as a group, as a team, as a company, uh, and pulling that together. And uh, yeah, no, I think it's 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 a great explanation of of how that works and and how Can you're trying to pull those pieces Michelle, together. Sure, that? absolutely. I mean, that it's such a good such a good uh, comment and. It just it comes down to knowing your audience for whatever the application is. So when we're trying to provide indoor air quality uh, or a healthy building confidence to end users or occupants or employees, we want that to be very simple, very visual. Be clear what you're measuring, but it's red, yellow, green, right? It's it's good or it's great or it's not. And here's why not. When you get into then, okay, what are you going to do about that if you're running the building? Or what are you going to do if it's around sustainability or net zero? Or what are you going to do if it's around asset performance? That's going to be much more data rich for the professionals who are back there running things and making those changes. But it really is about tailoring the application and the platform to the decision makers or the customers that you're trying to affect or, or give confidence. Yeah, I think, I think that pulls in what Pam was talking about earlier as well, about just that this is an iterative process, right? You need to continue to get feedback and and make improvements and, you know, continue to evolve and be okay with evolving more rapidly uh, these the applications, the interfaces, the data that's, that's being shown. Um, you know, I think, Greg, maybe a question to you around uh, a lot of these, especially when we're talking about whole buildings, smart buildings, um, you know, these seem like really large investments uh, that people would need to make in order to see some progress. Um, you know, when when there are lots of priorities for for capital, are there some ways that companies could explore some of these new technologies without having to make a, a large investment uh, upfront? Uh, as they're exploring what might work for them? Sure, and I'll be, I'll be brief, I'll be as brief as I can. First of all, the, the great thing about healthy, if you're trying to make a building healthier, uh, the great thing about healthy is it's not rocket science to a large degree. There's better filtration, right? There's better ventilation, uh, and there's potential for purification in spaces. That is not huge capital expense to do any of those things. And we also have the technology to balance those things. So if you, if you, drive more ventilation, the response might be, well, that's gonna cost more because it'll be more energy. But we have other things we can adjust in the building to kind of co-optimize those outcomes. So healthy in itself is not rocket science and doesn't involve huge investments. Sustainability, of course, gets longer term and requires different technologies, different equipment. But we do have, you know, you saw the video on Abound, which is a digital platform, which has multifaceted approaches to these different um, priority areas. And doing, 
monitor, you know, censoring, monitoring, and then taking that data to inform what you do means you don't have to take the plunge on doing everything at once. You figure out where your shortcomings are and you address them more uh, as a rifle shot than as a shotgun. And you can, again, optimize like we've all talked about doing only what you need to do versus kind of trying to do everything at once. And so, yes, there's a, there's a real ability to help make smarter decisions and avoid unnecessary investment. Yeah. Now, I, you know, I think it's it's top of mind for so many um, as they're looking at the different priorities that they have. So I think that's some good good advice on on how to start small and and be able to see those uh, benefits and rewards very quickly. Uh, we have about ten minutes left in our um, in our webinar for today, so I want to take a little bit of turn to talking about the future and talking about some of the things uh, that we see coming on the horizons. And I'm gonna start with you, Pam, um, and just ask about some of the things that might be in the incubator on your side in the brainstorming sessions. Uh, some of the, maybe the next great uses of digital platforms in real estate that, that you think we might be seeing in the next five years or might be, might be getting their start today. Um, I think this is probably the answer across the board. Generally, when you ask this in any sector that you're talking about, but AI is going to play a, a huge role in what we're looking at um, going forward. I think we're going to see a huge emergence and reliance on AI as a digital tool that commercial real estate um, companies and companies in general generally take advantage of. Um, I think utilizing AI to enhance both your customer and tenant experience is gonna allow you to reach a larger audience with with using less people on your team. Um, I think there's already uses for virtual and augmented reality even um, when we're thinking about virtual property tours, allowing prospective buyers or leaseholders and tenants to explore your properties remotely. Um, I think in the next probably five years, we'll see more advanced applications of that, um, virtual staging of properties, augmented navigation, wayfinding through things. Um, but I think when, when we're talking about things that we're looking at, we're, we want to provide extensions of what we're providing as a customer experience to our tenants and residents already. So we can't be, we don't have a 24 car our concierge in our buildings at every single building. It's, it's not necessarily something that's feasible from a standpoint, um, a money standpoint, or just from a people standpoint. So I think there's gonna be, and what we're looking at is, is finding out ways to implement some sort of digital concierge in order to provide that extended customer service experience to people, be able to answer questions, at any given moment, be able to even serve some of those workflows. And, you know, I talked about implementing digital forms, but where do we take that next? Perhaps building those forms into AI and having the AI say, okay, what, what, what do you need? What form do you need? And having it fill it out for you and, and send that right through to an automated workflow and sending that through to a building. I think AI in many different formats is probably going to be the largest thing that we see in the next five years, if I had to wager a guess. I was I was just going to direct to you. So, yeah, go ahead, Dejana. The survey that I spoke to earlier, I, I did want to touch on a few of the, the AI insights, just sort of touching on what Pam and, and following up on, on that is um, in terms of generative AI, there's a lot of optimism. I think I did speak to that. Um, but 48% of the respondents of the survey feel that it will improve flexibility for them. But ironically, 
it won't necessarily tackle or eliminate the structural labor, labor market issues. So the shortage in labor, um, there might be some net new jobs created by AI, but we don't think that it will actually permanently solve for some of those labor market issues, at least not independently. I think collectively with many other things, it, it could support um, changes and improvements, but it won't solve for it. Um, I also would share 84% of the respondents said that they are actually using Gen AI at work today, or they anticipate in the next 12 months or so that they will. So it is very much top of mind. I think a lot of people are trying to understand it firstly, right? And then understand, okay, how does it impact me and my job, my day-to-day -day job? And how does it impact what I'm able to do better, more effectively in the future? So I think there's a lot of positivity around it. And then we're also, of course, seeing it um, sort of quicker adoption naturally in the tech you know, environment, right? Then in terms of sector and not as much, I think our lowest respondent um, sort of sector is government and public sector. So really a big gap between usage, but still a lot of positivity around um, application of it and wanting to use it and having interest over the next 12 to 18 months. So anyway, just wanted to share some of those tidbits from the survey. Yeah, those are great. I appreciate that. Um, yeah. And you know, this certainly won't be the last conversation about workplace or about buildings or healthy environments that doesn't include the topic of, <laughs> of generative AI. So I am sure there's much more to come on that. Um, we are, we have about five minutes left. Um, and I wanted to, uh, Dejana, ask you uh, a quick question about, uh, you know, some of our, our personal workspaces in terms of uh, our offices and the, and the way we work. And I actually have had the pleasure of being able to see uh, the EY offices uh, here in Chicago, both the Wave Space and the main office, uh, both which were delivered uh, during COVID, post-COVID, really with that design in mind. Just wondered if you had any takeaways from uh, how EY is approaching workspace and what you think makes some of the spaces purposeful um, and important to the business uh, for a company that quite frankly was working uh, a lot more flexibly even before the pandemic. Any, any insights there for people who are just starting in this journey? Absolutely. And I'll share, you know, most of EY's sites, we are in typical CBD metropolitan areas, just given the work and we want to be close to clients. Most of our corporate clients are also in the same area. So um, in terms of portfolio footprint, that's where we mostly sit. In Chicago, Michelle, to the point that you mentioned, you know, we do have two separate spaces. So we have our main corporate office and we have what we call our wave space, our EY wave space, which is meant to be a collaborative um, space that we usually, usually meant for clients, but it's an innovative space and it's built to be open, um, collaborative with, to work with our clients. But Chicago, it is two different sites, but not in every single city where we have a wave space. It is a separate location. So there are some locations um, where it is actually in the same stack. So just to make, make sure that's clear. But what EY, what we did first, and this is really pre-pandemic um, with David Kamen and, and others from our internal facilities team, really helped to define what is our EY at work program. So what is our platform? What's our mission, mission vision? And then what does that mean for the workplace itself? And so, as you said, Michelle, we worked pretty collaboratively um, and flexibly before the pandemic because we're consultants, we're professional services, we EY's product, it's our people. Um, and so we need to be out with clients and, and learning from each other. So they built our work environment to support that. But they first had to define what does that mean, right? And every 
city might have a different need. And so um, the one thing I'd say that kudos to the team is that we've iterated and learned with every single build out. So what we did in Chicago as one of the more recent build outs, we learned a lot from Manhattan West and others where we did either in the pandemic or right before the pandemic to really sort of push the needle. One short thing I'll, I'll share is in Chicago, we've got over 40 different sort of work settings, um, which is definitely very unique in the sense of there's uh, you know, employee lounges, there's stadium seating for like all hands meetings, there's obviously different types of um, focus rooms, work rooms, conference rooms, and some are reservable, some are non-reservable. So we really, I think, played with the different configurations of space, and we're really trying to push the envelope on what we can provide our employees. And, you know, we're still, we're still learning too, so we're taking insight and um, one of our newer sites was, I believe, in, um, I'm forgetting what the city is now, but Dallas and we learned from Chicago and made Dallas even better in some regards where we had lessons learned. So I think it's just like I said earlier, it's an iterative process. It's not one and done. Um, and it's really trying to be strategic and about how you innovate and how you invest dollars and really trying to define the KPIs so that you can measure success and measure ROI to better have that communication back to leadership to say, okay, this is working, but this is why it's working. Um, so anyway, some stuff to share with you guys. Yeah, I that's super helpful. And uh, yeah, I you know, I think that ongoing uh, evolving processes is what most companies are going through. And Nazar, I'm going to I'm going to give you the last word here as we wrap up, because you are kind of in a unique position of seeing what companies what exactly is happening during this evolution as people are. Uh, you know, making changes to their workplace resources. So any any thoughts you have on, on the future and what you're seeing uh, folks doing today in terms of uh, how they're evolving their space and, and what kinds of things are going into our, our circular economy here with workplace? Yeah, yeah, of course, I'll, I'll be very brief. I'm, I'm looking at the time. So I, you know, the, the, uh, when when we started Reaply, we were very broad in terms of our categories and our offerings in terms of what's being put on the platform. And the reason that in my presentation in the discussion I focused on FF&E, it's because that's what we've we've where we've seen the trend go. In that, oh, you know what? We we have a ton of furniture. We don't know what to do with it. There's a, a lot less need for offices. Everybody wants to, or a lot a lot more folks now want to want to be remote. And there's a yeah, there's there's some push towards hybrid, but even not everybody's there yet. And so it's it's very clear that um, the amount of space that we needed is no longer the, the amount that we need now. And so companies are saying, well, okay, how can we use that to our advantage? How can we create some cost savings in this process and and recoup some of the costs that we invented into uh, that we put into into this in the first place? And so and so now they're looking for connectivity. So how do I speak to other organizations? How do I how do I build a community around me so that um, the stuff that I own is not waste anymore, and it could be someone else. It could be value to somebody else. And so, what we're seeing now is is this desire to be connected to to a ton of different organizations, like donation partners or, um, or schools, hospitals, things like that, where some of these assets can go, uh, and then the the assets and resources can continue to be in circulation. I think that's a great note to end on. Uh, Chuck, I'm going to let you wrap us up here um, at the end of our, our webinar. Thanks to all of our panelists. Thank you so much for all of your insights during this uh, Q&A. Appreciate it. That's awesome. I, I was going to tell Nazar, I, I think our homeowners uh, association, our subdivision <laughs> on their Facebook page beat you to the punch when it came to recycling 
all of the stuff that they have. They post all the things that they uh, are, are looking to get rid of on the website. People come over, they pick it up on the porch, they move it around, people trade. Uh, it's 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 the, the ultimate yard sale, I think, for for what we're doing. But your your mission to create that for uh, sustainability and reuse is just uh, very impressive. So congratulations on that. Uh, thanks again to our entire panel uh, and to our live audience for actually participating in the questions. Um, we do have your names in case somebody wants to try to get back with you on anything. So I do appreciate uh, those inputs, lots of information to process. And whether you've joined us or live or you're just watching this as a recording, thank you for tuning in and be sure to register for Realcom's next webinar series, Tracking the Rapid Advancement of AI Maturity in the CRE Sector. Funny that uh, Dijana mentioned a, a, a and Pam, same thing. Everything is going to be about AI in the future. You want to know what it's about? Tune in October 26th and we'll hear about the facts, fictions, and real strategic possibilities, starting with all the categories of AI, definitions, use cases, so much more. On November 2nd, we'll hit measurable business outcomes, client case studies, and the future. So really what people have actually done with it and where they're going with it in commercial real estate. Uh, these two webinar, webinars are going to cover the very latest information about AI and how it's being integrated into actual CRE technology today. Also, make your plans for Realcom's Core Tech and Buildings AI conference coming up in Silicon Valley, November 14th, or excuse me, 15th and 16th. Uh, visit realcom.com for more details on the agenda, topics, speakers, hotels, all, so much more. So be sure to go there to pick that up. That's realcom.com. That's it for us. Be safe. Thank you, everyone. We'll see you next time. Thanks, everyone.